Amen. Well, uh, it's our privilege as a church to come alongside uh, just amazing organizations like International Justice Mission, which is a Christian organization that uh, seeks justice. And they get that from Isaiah 1, 17, that God's people are to be a people that seek justice. And so uh, this, this month, the last couple of months, we are uh, in our Advent campaign where we uh, try to raise awareness, prayer, and resources to organizations like uh, IJM and like Triad and like our global partners. And so I just wanted to give a quick update on that, on where we're at. Uh, we're trying to raise 65000 As of yesterday, we were at 75% of that, so praise God for that. You guys are doing awesome. Uh, thank you so much for investing in the kingdom in that way, and thank you for uh, those that are, are matching the gift and, and helping our resources go even further and faster for God's work around the world. So continue to give. Uh, we would love to blow out of the water 65000 and and do what we did last year and just give abundantly above more than what we, par- we agreed to partner with. So with that, I'll go ahead and turn our attention to God's word this morning. Let me pray for IJM first and then um, we'll do that. So Father, we thank you for, uh, for the power of your spirit in working in your saints across this world, doing your good work of restorative justice, bringing, um, bringing girls out of the brothel, bringing little kids out of the fishing industry, bringing um, people free from the rice mills and the brick kilns. Um, or we're, we're mindful, even as we turn our attention to the book of Exodus, that your people were enslaved and uh, ordered to make bricks and you saw their, their groaning and their crying and you heard and you responded. Lord, we believe that you continue to do that today and you do that through your people, you do that through your church, you do that through organizations like IJM. And so we pray that you would use our tiny little offering to this end uh, to, to rescue image bearers uh, that matter to you uh, and may they matter to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, now I would invite you to uh, begin to turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus as we are in this series. If you're just joining us, we're, we're glad you're here. We are in Exodus chapter 7 today. Uh, as you're turning there, I want you to imagine you lived 3,300 years ago. You're an Egyptian in the River Nile basin thing of, uh, yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. You're living in this uh, oasis of, of, of green in, surrounded by the desert. Uh, there's abundance. Uh, the, the Nile is providing all your, your life. It's your food. It's your watering your, your, your livestock and your plants. Uh, life is really good. All the hard work in your society is done by slaves. Um, and in fact, even in your own house, you, you've got some household slaves. So you, your life is really marked by uh, comfort and leisure. And, and really, it, it just means that you, you, you can do what you want. You still need to uh, go and, and make your offerings, make your sacrifices to the, the multitude of, of the different gods that you believe are, are bringing all this comfort and security and wealth and prosperity in your life. And so, so you'll go make a, an offering to happy the God of uh, prosperity uh, and uh, the God of Heket uh, and you, you'll go to the sun God Ra and, and you'll, you'll make your offerings and you'll, you'll treat Pharaoh a, as a God and, and overall that's just how you're rolling. Life is good. There's peace. There, there's security. And, and imagine uh, if you were actually just Pharaoh 
Like, like you've been told since you uh, were born that you are actually a living God and everyone has treated you as such. And your whole world is people serving you, bowing down to you, uh, getting you whatever you need. You reign over the largest empire the world has seen at this time and you have the largest army and, and um, you're just expanding that out as far as possible for your name and your renown and your glory to go out as far as possible. Life is good. And you, you control uh, the, 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 a, a whole group of people that are your slaves and they're doing all your hard work and they're building monuments to your name and your glory and your renown. And one day you're in your palace and uh, one of your servants comes in and says, hey, there's two old uh, Hebrew men that, that would like to come talk with you. And you're feeling like a benevolent God that day. So you're like, let them in. And they come in and they've got staffs and they look kind of old and kind of de- decrepit. And, and, and they, they, to your surprise, say, we, we serve the God of the Israelites, uh, the Lord. And he says, let my people go. And this is, this is almost laughable to you that anyone would, would, would claim any authority on you because uh, you, after all, are one of the gods. In fact, as far as you're concerned, yeah, there's the other offerings to all the other gods, but you're the one that's li- living and breathing and, and in the, with the people. Everyone, uh, everyone serves you. And so for someone to say uh, there is a God who has demands on your life, that's laughable. Well, how would you respond? Well, in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, we saw last week, we saw how, how, how Pharaoh responded. He responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's just this question like, I don't know the Lord. Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Now, now this is 3,300 years ago, and in some ways it seems like a, a different world altogether, a different planet altogether. But, but in other ways, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are very modern people. They live in a pluralistic, religiously pluralistic society. It wasn't offensive to Pharaoh that, that uh, someone would say, that, that, that the Hebrews would have a God, and that they'd have their own prayers, that they'd have their own spirituality. That's not offensive a- at all. What was offensive to Pharaoh is that this God would make demands on him. And again, like our day, it's not offensive in, in our culture that, that there is a belief that uh, we're, we're a religious, spiritual people. Like, no, no one's going to be offended. Uh, by and large, the last census, only 3% of Americans identified as atheists. Now, they're a vocal minority, but overall, we're, we're very comfortable with uh, our neighbors and our friends and everyone having their spirituality. What's offensive is when they or us say something that says, uh, actually, I believe in a God that makes demands on your life as well. And uh, they might say to you, who is the Lord Jesus that I should obey him? Well, it's in this, this scene that, that uh, what, what Pharaoh thought was a rhetorical question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God takes seriously and he's about to answer his question. And that's what this passage is all about. This passage we're going to look at is actually five chapters. So we're, we're not going to read it all. We're not going to get into it all. In fact, uh, really for the rest of this series, we're going to cover large chunks. And we would encourage you for your own discipleship and your own preparation to uh, go ahead of us and, and begin to dig in. We'll, we'll put uh, week by week what we'll cover each week. I can't cover it all, but, but this is God's answer to Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God's like, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you who I am. 
Former heavyweight uh, champion Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And God is about to punch Pharaoh and his gods and his people in the mouth. And, and so uh, we're going to see in this passage that in, in these chapters, what, what is the purpose of the plagues? In fact, only about one or two of them is an actual plague. They, they really should be translated the blows or, or the punches. What are the purpose of these plagues that are going to be unveiled over the next five chapters? And in fact, we'll see rising to the surface, there is one predominant purpose to make God's name and identity known and three ways that he's going to do that. He's going to make his name known by showing his matchless power. He's going to make his name known by showing his righteous judgment. And he's going to make his name known by showing his sovereign mercy. So let's, let's look at that together as we turn our attention to Exodus chapter 7. We'll pick it up in verse 8 as the scene gets set up. His matchless power. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. Real quick side note, what gets translated as snake there is different than the word of snake earlier in the the book of Exodus. It's actually translated, it should be a sea creature. So I don't even know what that looks like in this moment. Throws down his staff and there's a sea creature on the uh, the floor there. Um, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, it became a snake or sea creature. And then Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things with their secret arts. So they throw down their staff, and we've got snakes or sea creatures or whatever. Something bizarre is really going on on the floor of Pharaoh's floor right there. And uh, what we see right away is that there are real demonic spiritual forces and powers at at work throughout this whole series in this world, uh, but we'll see very quickly that they are no match. No match. It's not an equal battle because in verse 12, we see some foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the rest of this uh, encounter with Pharaoh. Each one threw down his staff. It became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Again, I, I think we just have to use some Holy Spirit imagination here, but this, is a, this should have been a, 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 a warning sign. This should have told everybody in the room something. Oh, oh, this is different. Like, like that, that, that was weird. Uh, on every level, that was weird, but uh, our staffs are now nowhere to be seen because the sea creature ate them. Uh, but, but look... Then we, we begin to see a pattern. There, there's many patterns if you go through this. But one of the patterns was, we see right away in verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. And we'll, we'll come back to that later in the passage. Uh, his heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. So this kind of just foreshadows the whole, uh, what, what's going to go down. But, it, but it, it shows right away that, that God has matchless power. And God wants to show his identity through his matchless power. In fact, we're, we're going to jump ahead right now just quickly to uh, the seventh plague uh, in chapter 9 and verse 13. Uh, li- listen to how God talks about why he's doing what he's doing in these plagues. Verse 13 of chapter 9. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says to my people, go so that they may worship me. 
Or this time, I will send the full force, that's his matchless power, of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So, there's the purpose clause, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up. Pharaoh and the Egyptians for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, my matchless power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So this is what what God is doing. Now, whenever in the Bible, uh, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, whenever you see God do something supernaturally miraculous, it would, you would do well to pause and ask the question, why did God do it like this? Because after all, he is God. God could have uh, immediately just smote the, the, the Egyptians, could have made them all blind, and he could have had his people just walk out freely. That's what God could have done. He is God. There's nothing outside of his power. Same thing with Jesus' miracles. Why does he do them the way that he does? Or for, or for that matter, because he's God, he could have prevented this whole slavery thing from ever even happening. So, so what is God doing, and why does he do what he does? Well, he he tells us that he's doing it to show his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and his hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So, so, so God says, this is going to be a multi-generational thing. You are going to tell your kids and you're going to tell your grandkids and they're going to tell their kids and this is going to roll on out forever and ever. And so if you, again, if you were to ask an ancient Hebrew, uh, tell me about who God is, they would say, well, let me tell you a story. And the story they would point to is the story we're reading. It is the predominant example in the Old Testament of God's saving purposes. It's the Exodus. And they say, oh, you want to know who God is? Well, actually, he told us to tell you about these plagues, <laughs> about his matchless power. So, so this is the, the first thing. Now, these, these plagues, they, they slowly ramp up in, in, in extremity uh, and, and severity. Uh, but, but let's begin to now shift from his matchless power to his righteous judgment. Each one of the plagues are actually not just a judgment on Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians and their slaveholder. It's a judgment on the false gods of the Egyptians. Every single one of them corresponds to one of the gods that the Egyptians would go to and make their sacrifice who they believed were providing the good things in life. And so we see his righteous judgment begin to roll out. It is his good and righteous judgment. Look at chapter, back to chapter 7. We'll pick it up in the first plague, and we'll only look at a couple just so you can start to see this pattern. It says, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let my people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. So, so what's, what's going on here? Again, the Nile, the Nile was life. 
The Nile was where they got all their sustenance, their prosperity, their, their, their power really because they were able to uh, surround the Nile. It's just this luscious green part in the middle of the, the North African desert is the Nile. And, and the people would come and they would, they would make sacrifices and offerings in addition to getting their water and their food. They would make sacrifices and offerings to the Egyptian god Happy. In fact, I got a picture of Happy up here on the screen here. Happy. So you got Happy. Happy represented, he was the god of the Nile, and he represented um, well, what we would call the good life. And across all cultures, across all times, all people, what, what's innate in all of humanity is we are all on a pursuit for the good life. And that, like, that might look different for, for each of us, but basically it's uh, we want good community, we want good food, we want good family, we, we want uh, safety and security. These, this is the good life. And so the Egyptians believed that happy, and it's not lost on me that that's his name, happy provided happiness for for the Egyptians. And so they would come and they would bow down and they would make their offerings and they would uh, praise the God happy and, and, um, and, and they, would, they would, it seemed to be working for them. That they had the good life as far as it was possible without indoor plumbing and the internet. They had the good life and they, uh, they believed happy. This, this dude was, was just pouring out his bounty on them. And so God tells Moses, hey, when everyone's going down, to bow down to this false God, I'm going to begin to exercise my righteous judgment. Uh, look at verse 16. Then, then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But, but until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this time now, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. This is just immediately God striking a blow uh, against the, the very source of life and prosperity of the Egyptians. And um, again, with, with all these, you might think, well, that, what's going on here? That seems really harsh. Like the water's turned to blood and the fish are dying. And we're told that it, it just begins to stink. And, and, and the, what they thought was their, their only hope, that that God has been shown to be impotent powerless. It's been shown to be a false idol. And, and what's going on here? Well, well it's, it's what God is doing whenever he reveals our idolatry. We get mad. We're like, I, I thought this thing would give me happiness. And I thought if I only got that, if I only had this position, if I only had this stuff, I, I would finally be satisfied. And it's, it's the mercy of God when he takes that away and strips that away and shows where you were really putting your hope. Because if we're honest, even as believers, oftentimes we want God's stuff more than we want God. And if we find ourselves in a place of life where we're just pursuing God's stuff, it is his mercy when he takes that stuff away from us so that we don't have it anymore. That's mercy. It's a severe mercy, but it's good mercy. So I've said it like this. The, the best things in life, the best things of God's creation, for example, for the Egyptians, God's creation, the Nile River, was an incredible blessing to that region. But if it becomes a God, it becomes a terrible God. So... 
Husbands make terrible gods. Wives make terrible gods. Your children in the suburbs, hello, make terrible gods. And if you put on them the expectation that they're going to satisfy you, that they're there to serve you, that, that, that uh, they're there to make your life have meaning and purpose, man, that, that is not a way that we are not designed to bear up under the weight of worship that only God is mean, is designs to bear up. So, so if, uh, if God in his mercy takes away your prosperity, takes away your, your, your stuff, so that all you have in the end is God, that is a mercy to you. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And earth has nothing I desire except for you. It, honestly, is anyone in that place right now? The earth has nothing I desire except for you, Lord? And so God is, is exercising his righteous judgment, but even in his righteous judgment against the false gods of the, the Egyptians, it's a kind of grace to them. It's, it's, he's, it's, it's shots across the bow saying, you can repent, you can turn, you can turn to the living God. There's still hope for you. But look at verse 22. It says, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Now this, this is crazy to me because uh, they turn it to blood. It, it's blood everywhere. And uh, Pharaoh has these magicians and they're like, hey, we found a few buckets of fresh water. Guess what? Bam, blood. What do you think, Pharaoh? He's like, I was, I was hoping for water. But, but, but even in that, something in that, he was able to connect the dots well you know, obviously this Lord is, is no better than my magician, so his heart becomes hardened. This, there's this pattern, this hardening of his heart. See, the same thing in the, the next plague. Um, it goes on, verse 23. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. It's a, it's a tragic scene. And yet, Pharaoh's heart is only hardened in this scene. Verse, next verse, seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country the Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all of your officials. Again, this is a judgment on an Egyptian god named Heket, the frog-faced god. I've got a picture of Heket here. They believed that these frogs were, were little gods and, and Heket ruled them all and that the frogs had this magical power to bring success and prosperity. So, so you've got the good life with uh, uh, happy, but now you've got Heket uh, who, who brings uh, the people success and, and uh, success and fertility, rather. It's a fertility God. So success and fertility. And so we all want success and and the families want fertility. And so you would go and make your offerings to Heket. And God says, okay, that's what you want. You can have as much as you want. 
And the frogs just start pouring in and pouring in. And, and they go in. And, and it, did you notice the, just the comprehensiveness of the, they'll be in your beds. They'll be in your kneading troughs. They're going to be in your ovens. They're going to be in your bowls. They're going to be everywhere. They're, they're going to, you're going to worship that? Okay, this is what you get. You want frogs? I'll give you frogs. Verse 7. But, again, the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And again, now I think Pharaoh's a little bit annoyed. Like, okay, I didn't need more frogs, just like I didn't need more blood, but the frogs came up. Verse 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord. Now, this is interesting because it seems like there's a little bit of a shift in his heart. He knows the name. He, He knows the name of Yahweh. Pray to Yahweh. There's, there's some recognition there to take away the frogs from me and, and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your house may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. And then his answer, again, is just so bizarre to me. He says, okay, tomorrow. I'm good with another 24 hours with the frogs. Like, I would be like, today, just pray right now. You can pray where you're at, Moses. Take them away. No, he's like, tomorrow, I'm just going to sleep with the frogs in my bed one more night, and then we'll do it. But he says tomorrow, and and then uh, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Again, the purpose of this righteous judgment is to uh, reveal his identity so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Pharaoh had asked, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God is showing him who the Lord is. The frogs will leave you and your houses and your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled in heaps, and the land reeked of them. But overall, the frog problem is done. So now what does Pharaoh do? Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. What's going on here? Well, this is, this is unfortunately something that as a pastor I see go on a lot. A crisis comes, a health issue, a relationship issue, a financial issue. So something comes and, and, and those people turn to the Lord. That they, they go all in on church. They, they get surrounded by community and, and a time goes by. The, the healing comes. Things get back in order. Everything happens. And then when, when everything's good again, there's just a drifting away from the Lord again. There's that, well, I, I, I made this improvement in my marriage, and so that's what happened. And uh, I did this in my business, or I, I got healed of this way. I beat cancer. Like, whatever it is, when the crisis is over, the hardening of heart comes in again. This is not unlike us. Pharaoh is like us. He's like, well, that problem's over. I guess I don't need to submit to Pharaoh or to the Lord anymore. And this is just a pattern in, in Pharaoh's life. But as it continues on, we won't dig in much more anymore, but uh, there, there's the plague of gnats, and that's, a, that's an indictment of their, um, their, their pursuit of comfort. Um, if you see like Egyptian hieroglyphs, it's one of just leisure and comfort. Well, send gnats everywhere, 
that takes that away. Uh, then there's plague of flies, same thing. Look at uh, verse 22 of chapter 8. It says, something different happens here at this point. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur, occur tomorrow. So, at, at, the, at the plague of gnats, finally the magicians are not able to re, reproduce the, the sign anymore. And eventually, they kind of wake up to reality, and they say, this is the finger of God. So, so they, they realize their limit and they say, this is the finger of God. And God begins to make a distinction in the rest of the plagues. They don't land in Goshen where the Israelites are, that they land on only the Egyptians. And, and in this distinction, God is hoping that, that the people will see, hey, there is only one God. He's the God of the Hebrews. We, we should follow him, which leads us to the next point. God wants to make himself known through his sovereign mercy. Sovereign mercy. Remember the promise that God is fulfilling in all of this. It's a promise to Abraham. Abraham, through you, uh, I I will bless you and you'll have offspring. And through you, you'll be a blessing to who? To all the nations of the earth. Guess what? So that includes Mexicans, Americans, Canadians, Koreans, uh, Thai people. But it also includes Egyptians, like, like this, this whole uh, demonstration of his power, this, this whole judgment by his plagues are actually a grace to the Egyptians. Why? Because if God's going to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's going to do that through Abraham, he, he's going to fulfill his promise by taking the people out of the land. So, so in, in so doing, he's also going to provide the way for the Savior to come and rescue Egyptians. And even in this, in this scene, in, in chapter 12, when they are leaving the land, it says many other people went with the Israelites. The implication is some Egyptians went with the Israelites out of Egypt. They are saved. They're brought into the kingdom of God. It's his sovereign mercy. But you might ask the question, well, if God can save, what's the deal with judgment? Can't you just... I mean, it's 2022. We don't like judgment and uh, it's corollary. We don't like wrath. Well, why, why does God have to be a God of judgment and wrath? Well, it's because of this. It's because God is love and God is holy. You're like, well, love and holy, that doesn't sound like it it's, corresponds with wrath. No, let me, let me show you that. If, if you have love, you have the possibility for wrath. Okay, so, so um, I, I, say, I say I love my wife and I love my daughters, right? And, and when I see them mistreated, when I see them taken advantage of, something in me rises up. A, a holy, righteous anger begins to rise to the surface. And if, if they're mistreated enough, they're abused enough, there's going to be a moment where I'm going to, to jump in and I'm going to fight for them, even if I know I can't win that battle. Why? Because uh, out of my love comes my wrath. It, if, I, if I saw my wife or my daughters being abused, mistreated, uh, and I just stood off to the side and said, well, I'm not going to do anything because I'm just a husband and a father of love. You say, no, you're not. No, you're not. If you loved your wife and you loved your kids, you would do something. Yes. 
And isn't this what is happening with God? Haven't we all sinned against his holiness, uh, sinned against him and his perfection? But isn't this what's happening with his people? He's already described Israel as his son, and his son is being abused. His son is being enslaved. In chapter 1, we saw that his son, that there is a systemic injustice of, of infanticide in the land, that they're being murdered. And we like to, in our culture, say, well, God is a God of love. God is a God of love. And we say, exactly. That's why he has wrath. And it's righteous and it's good that he would act and, be on, and, and respond to this injustice. And so he is pouring out his wrath in his sovereign mercy. So, what, so, so the question of why does God have wrath is actually the wrong question. The more scandalous question between us and God is, why does God have mercy? Because here's the deal. All of us are guilty. The Egyptians were, were certainly guilty. But so were the Israelites. We're, we're told that the Israelites bowed down to all the same gods. They had been so assimilated, they'd go to the riverside and, and make their offerings to Happy and to Heket and to the sun god Ra and to the bull god Apis. In fact, uh, after God saves them, the Israelites are still morons. They still are. Like, as soon as stuff gets a little bit tough, they're like, oh no, why don't we fashion Apis, the little calf god who intercedes for us and, and we'll attribute all of our goodness to him. They do this. So why? The question isn't, why would God have wrath? The question is, why would God have mercy when none of us deserve it? God would still be God. He'd still be holy if all of us got what we deserved. Well, well, Paul answers this question, speaking of this passage, in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is dealing with this question, well, is God unfair is it, unfair, is it unfair that God would save some and not others? And Paul is basically going to say, you're asking the wrong question. The answer is God is unfair. It's called his sovereign mercy. There are some who receive mercy and grace so that it will fuel their worship and God's glory. Look at Romans 9. I'll pick it up in verse 14. It says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. The scandal of the gospel is that he has mercy, but he's still holy and he's still just. And it isn't just that um, in his mercy, okay, I'm, I'm going to ignore my holiness and I'm going to ignore my justice for these people that come to me. That's not what he's doing there. there. There is no injustice, small or great, in all of history that will not be met with, with justice. But here's the deal. It will either be met by you in, in hell under the righteous wrath of God forever and ever or it will have been met in Jesus. 
who, who took on our flesh, who lived a life of perfect obedience, who did not deserve any wrath, but willingly went to the cross, willingly embraced the righteous judgment of God. See, if you study the plagues and compare them to Genesis 1 and 2, it's a decreation story. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's chaos to order. In the plagues, it's, it's order to chaos. It's a, a, a tearing down. And in, in the ninth plague, the darkness that comes on the land is a judgment on the sun god Ra, but for three days, it's completely dark. Well, Jesus takes all of this on himself. Jesus, in a sense, the, the creator of the cosmos goes to the cross and is being decreated. And on the cross, darkness covers the land for three hours. Jesus takes the darkness that you and I deserve. And next week, we'll see, ultimately, Jesus is the Passover lamb that covers us with his blood. Jesus is the one who took on the wrath. So all sin deserves wrath. Jesus takes it. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So there it is. There's the three things that God's matchless power has been on display, his righteous judgment, and his sovereign mercy. It is his sovereign mercy that saves. But let's, let's say, let, let's, let's explore a little bit more what that looks like. How do we come to the Lord in this? Let, let's talk about Pharaoh for a moment. 16 times Pharaoh's heart is described as becoming hard. In fact, I'll put a, a chart up here. Uh, the question is, who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? And the answer is yes. Yes. But, but look at this pattern a little bit. In, in chapter 7, verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then uh, for the next several chapters, it is either, it doesn't say who does it, or it says Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. He's on a trajectory. He gets to a certain point, just like Romans chapter 1, a certain point where God basically hands him over to what he really wants, just a hard heart, and God just begins to use that for his purposes and for his glory for the rest of the chapters. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But, but you can see here there's patterns. And, and what God intends is to make his name known, uh, and he's going to get glory either by uh, showing his righteous wrath against sinners or by showing his sovereign mercy to those that don't deserve it. Either way, he's going to get glory. But I think what's important for you and for me to recognize here is our hearts are all on a trajectory. Your heart is not spiritually neutral. If anything, because uh, we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, our heart's trajectory by nature, Paul says in, in Ephesians, are children of wrath. That's what we are by nature. Our hearts are bent towards rebellion, bent towards hardness. It takes God's sovereign mercy to make them flesh, make them soft. But all along the way, Pharaoh makes real choices, He's not a robot in God's hands. He's making real choices, just as you and I are making real choices. Your heart right now is either getting harder or softer. And do you know what it is? Are you careful about the cultivating of your heart? Like, um, last night I, was, I, I text Rick because I, 
I was a pastor in Okinawa for a long time, and the military community would come through there for a few years and leave. And I said, one of the discouraging things about being a pastor for 20 years is seeing how many people abandon the faith altogether. Just walk away altogether. I said, that's really discouraging. (laughs) And and I was kind of talking to Rick about that, and I just realized, actually, when they left Okinawa... They never made it a priority to find a church, get plugged into a church, get plugged into community, to to continue to pursue God. And so they just put themselves on a trajectory of a hard heart. So so we want to be a people that are very much aware, I I want a soft heart, Lord. And and so so we, we, we come and we renew our minds to the gospel. I mean, every week after we pray, we, we close in prayer and we say we respond to the proclamation of God's word in four ways. It's not just religious activity that we're doing in that moment. Like when we say we want to be a people that train our hearts to respond in praise of the one who has saved us, that's for your heart. We, we give because he's given us everything. That's for your heart. We uh, come to the communion table and we pray. It's for your heart. Are you cultivating a heart of softness, towards the Lord, or will you let it drift towards hardness? Pharaoh very much let it drift towards hardness. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. It's a real call to you and to me this morning. Do not harden your hearts. God's purpose in the plagues was to make known his identity through his matchless power, his righteous judgment, and sovereign mercy. His matchless power. He's given us his spirit to make known among our neighbors and the nations his glory and his grace. You've got the power of God that created the universe living in you if you're a follower of Jesus this morning. So tap into that. His righteous judgment. Again, it's not popular in our day, but one of the most loving things you could do for people in your life is to remind them that God is a righteous judge. The plagues are merely a foreshadow of Revelation chapter 16. In Revelation chapter 16, when God pours out his wrath at the final judgment, we see water turned to blood. We see darkness covering the land. We see people covered in sores. It's an echo of the plagues. That is coming for all who have not bowed their knee and confessed Jesus as Lord. If you really love your neighbor and really love your friend and really love the nations, you've got to tell them about the righteous wrath of God that is coming. Because the good news of the gospel, the sovereign mercy of God, it follows up on that. We, we like to tell people, hey, God is love. And they're like, cool, I'll take that and move on with their life. No, God is love, but that's the crazy because we deserve his wrath. So we tell about his wrath. And then we finally get to tell them about the sovereign grace of God. God is a God of righteous wrath, but Jesus took it in our place. And if you trust in him by grace through faith, you don't receive that wrath. He did. You receive grace and mercy and adoption as sons and daughters of God. This is the gospel. Amen? Let me pray for us to that end. Lord, we, we thank you for the story that you commanded your people to tell their children and their children's children. What a picture of grace and mercy that comes to us. Lord, thank you for making a distinction of your people in the land of Goshen. And now you make a distinction of us in Jesus. Lord, we do pray that each of us here would cultivate a heart of softness. 
And we cannot do that on our own. We need you to do that. But we commit our wills to your will. Be glorified in us with hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.